Uh, it's amazing that it's my destiny to be the first Aussie to win. Just incredible. And your dad was here to share it with you, which must have been even <coughs> more special. Uh, amazing that he was here. Um, and, you know, a hug with him behind the 10th green there when it was all over was something I'll never forget. I'm sure almost every Australian golf fan remembers where they were the day Adam Scott won the Masters. Certainly, today's guest will never forget. Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to answer the unanswerable question, just what draws people to this infuriating game? From lifelong duffers to the very best in the world, to entrepreneurs and administrators, we explore what makes golf so much more than just a game for so many. Today's guest is Phil Scott, best known as the father of Adam, but a man who's independently spent his entire life in and around golf. From an unusual introduction to the game at the age of 14, to leaving school two years later to take up a professional traineeship, to standing in near darkness in the 10th fairway of Augusta National Golf Club, watching his son create a piece of Australian sporting history. It's been quite the journey for Phil Scott, and it's covered almost every facet of golf and the industry that surrounds it. And today, we get to sit down and hear at least a little bit about how it's all unfolded. I caught up with Phil at Sanctuary Cove on the Gold Coast, and I got straight into it by asking him, What's the thing about golf for Phil Scott? Well, the thing about golf for me, Rod, is that golf has been my life and everything else has been supplementary almost, leaving school at 16 and becoming a trainee pro and getting to the age and stage I'm at now. Those intervening years have only been golf in a lot of different ways, uh, lots of different types and parts of golf that I've been influenced by. And now as I'm at the age where reflection is a positive thing, I'm really happy looking back and thinking this is what I did with my life. The game's changed massively throughout that 47 years. Um, I like evolution. I like change. Uh, it's part of getting things right, I guess. Doesn't mean everything's right in golf, clearly, but uh, as an opportunity to spend your life in something, I lucked in getting it as golf. You've picked a pretty good one. Anybody listening to this will agree with you, of course, because if you listen to this and you don't agree with that, you're probably looking for another podcast. Let's go all the way back, Phil. The awful lot has happened in Orlando, and we'll talk about that. Let's go all the way back. How did you end up leaving school at 16 to become a pro? How, was you, how were you introduced to golf? Uh, I was introduced to golf literally by almost by default. No one in my family in Australia were golfers, um, but I was taken to the UK – when I was 14-ish uh, with my parents, my older sister stayed back here. She was a few, just finishing school, I think. Uh, and I was getting dumped with relatives around the UK while my mum and dad went off doing whatever they were trying to do. And at one point I was dumped in my mum's hometown, which is a little small village in South Wales that was a mining village. Um, it wasn't a terribly attractive place back in whenever that was, 1970, 72. Um, and there was nothing to do. I was with my grandparents who were quite old by then. There was nothing in this village. And there was a golf course a mile or two up the road. So I went up there and I started playing golf just as something to do. I maybe had only had one or two hits as a school kid, you know, in the school holidays, someone says, go play. Um, and I started playing and I got hooked. 
and that was it. So the rest of the trip, while I was dumped in different locations, I just found the local club and as was the way, maybe more so then when it was uh, less of a big business, the local pro would always help you and they helped me. I'd just go and introduce myself and they'd let me use the course or the facilities or whatever. So your first UK golf trip was as a beginner discovering the game. Yeah, I can remember the course. Funnily enough, uh, my uncle became the secretary manager of this course where I started playing. It's called Ashburnham Golf Links in South Wales. They used to play pro events. I feel like I've heard of it. Years ago. It's a very old and old-fashioned links, blind holes, um, and he became the secretary, you know, amazingly for a family that wasn't in golf. But that's where I started and then I got the bug and I didn't want to know about anything else. It speaks to something which this podcast is kind of trying to answer in some ways. That's an incredibly powerful change of direction in life. Mm. From no golf at all ever to here we are 47 years later mm. and you've done nothing but. Yep. I wonder whether that's more prevalent in golf than other things, whether it's got that addictive I nature do too. to it. Yeah, I do too. But maybe as golfers, we just like to think golf's more special perhaps maybe than it really should, is. anyway. But yeah, yeah, indeed. So was it the playing that grabbed you, the hitting of the ball, the one that came out of the middle and the, oh, I want to feel that again? Is that what grabbed you about golf or was there something else about it? You know, I honestly, thinking as you're asking that, I don't know. I just liked it. Maybe there was an element of self satisfaction that mm-hmm. you get from golf that it's just you i mean all i'd played like most kids at school that i went to a college in adelaide that was big time sport mm-hmm. afl footy or whatever aussie rules footy yeah. cricket etc uh golf was frowned upon they didn't like it when i got back that i played golf um that's fine but maybe it was that that i'd only ever been part of teams and golf appealed to me because it was individual i can't really think what what whether there was one single thing. The fact there was nothing else to do probably helped as well. Absolutely. <laughs> it's either this it or sit in the room. Either this or sit in the room. How did it unfold from there for you? You went on to become a professional, of course. So you've obviously got some aptitude mm. at, to take it up at 14. Think about leaving school at 16. Mm. Did you become a pro at 16? I did, or a trainee. I no, trainee, yeah. PGA traineeship. Yeah. So obviously you were decent at the game. Yeah, I, I got uh, good at it fairly quickly. Um, I came back from that trip, I remember, and I joined a club called Mount Lofty Golf Club in the Adelaide Hills. Uh, my dad joined as well. He didn't play for very long. He didn't like it. I think he did it just because he thought he'd better join and take me. Um, Mount Lofty had the the typical old-fashioned club pro, a guy called Ted Williams, um, who was just a great club pro. He was a nice player and a sold a bit of gear and gave some lessons and always had a story to tell. He was wonderful to me. Do we underrate the value of that person in golf? Oh, I definitely think we do. Mm, I do too. Uh, he, uh, the club pro for many years, and I, as I reflect on Ted then and many places I've been since, the club pro was the heart of the club. If you went to a club, you didn't know anything. You went into the pro shop and there was a club pro. Um, we've lost that a bit. Anyway, Ted encouraged me, he helped me, gave me some lessons, he gave me a few clubs and there wasn't much more to it that I just played every opportunity I could and got down to two, I think it was. And when two was, was two, not yeah, two as we see today. Two, when two was that two. was good enough to be a yeah. trainee yeah. and I went off and did my traineeship for three years. Yeah. At the time, 
was your thing. I think most who have that opportunity, in their mind, the first thing they'd like to do is be a player mm. rather than a teacher and a merchandiser and, a, mm. and run a club. Were you in that camp? Did you want to be a player? Absolutely. I think, my, look, I, I would think 99% of kids that become a trainee when they're young say, this. I'm going to be the next whoever it is. For me, it was... Adam Scott. Nicholas, now maybe generation. they're saying right. the next Adam, but yeah. uh, that was it for me. Um, and as I reflect, I would have loved to have got that good for sure, but... So I reflect back, I think I was probably lucky by 19 or 20, I realised I wasn't going to be that good. And what is it that you realise? We hear a lot of people say this. What did you realise? Obviously, you're playing with players who are going to go on to be that mm. good. What did you notice about I yourself? I played with a few guys that were that good. Um, you know, this was back in the days, of course, when the Aussie tour was, mm. you know, quite a tour. I don't know what we had, 18, 15, 19, 20 events. tournaments, yeah, you absolutely. know. Uh, some of the overseas stars came and played. Um, so you, it didn't take much to get an opportunity to get a game with Bob Shearer or whoever. And I played with a few of those guys and thought, boy, gee, they're a lot better than me. Um, and I didn't really know how to get any better, in truth. You know, all circumstances are different, but, of course, we didn't have the technology you have now. You couldn't look up YouTube and study swings. And uh, it'd be fair to say my boss when I was a trainee was not looking at me, thinking I can really help Phil get to be a better player. <laughs> Phil, there's some clubs out the back that need yeah. repairing. <laughs> he was thinking, good, here's Phil. I don't pay him very much. He can, he can do all the work. So there wasn't a huge encouragement. That's not any big deal to me. It's just how it was. And, and I think then I realised that that level of playing was beyond me. Mm. There's a difference that's pretty obvious pretty quick I think most people who most recreational players who go to a tournament for the first time are quite surprised mm. at just the level of talent and skill of the touring professional it's yeah. it's off the charts compared to anything you've ever seen be it good players coming to your club plus markers it's the two games don't resemble no, each other in any way it's not close is it it wasn't close then it's further apart now has trackman technology some of those things you mentioned has that widened that gap or has it just moved everybody sort of along the same level? We'll talk about technology and some things about the game a bit later, but if you'd had access to some of the technology that you're probably thinking about when you say that today, could you have gotten better enough or would everybody else also have advanced and you'd still be lagging behind? Let's accept it's a hypothetical. My gut feeling would be no, I wouldn't have because yeah. the others would have uh, equally moved yeah. and improved. So, no, I don't, think, I don't think I had that bit in me. Would you swap what's unfolded? for what might have been, had playing been a, an opportunity? It's well, an impossible it, question to ask. Again, it's the hypothetical because I don't know what it would of have been not, like. No. Um, having seen it pretty close up, I suppose, through Adam, no, I wouldn't, and I don't mean that in a uh, you know, any sort of corny way, but I've had a great time in golf and, of course, I've been lucky to see Adam do it and maybe there's even more pride in your offspring doing it than doing it yourself. I don't know, but maybe that's the case. There's a lot less pressure, isn't there? In some ways, yes. it's the best seat in the house, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> as close as you can be to actually having to hit the shots without actually having to hit them. That's Correct. Right. That, well, that's dead right. And look, I do think, in answer to your question, I think technology's broadened the gap from good golf to great golf. That, that gap's wider than it's ever been. Certainly. 
certainly the game is unrecognisable to the club player at that top level. I'm not sure, was that the case, do you think? Nicholas has talked about this, and he often used to say that if he went to any given golf club and played against the club champion, if Nicholas played off the very back tees and the club champion played off a set further forward, they would have a decent match. Yep. Nicholas would win because he's Nicholas, of course. Is that still true, do you think? Yeah, I, I definitely think that was how it was. We can, And there's not one factor, there's lots, isn't there, whether it's technology... Uh, equipment, fitness, fitness, all of those things. Bodies are, are, are built for golf together. now, aren't they? They build the body for yeah. golf specifically. And, and you can tailor everything around that. Back in, in the day we're talking about, I mean, the championship tee was 10 yards behind the members' tee. You know, that was pretty common. Um, there wasn't a huge difference. A good club pro or the good the club champion wasn't that far off a, a regular guy on tour. Maybe he's a little bit off the world mm. champion's. But you can't say that today. I mean, I think we see in the hand, even with the handicapping system approximations from tour pros, a scratch marker today is something like seven shots away from a tour player per round. You know, it's 28 <laughs> shots in the tournament. It's massive. That's with handicaps calculated on a home course that you play week in and week out yeah. versus courses set up for tournament golf. Yeah, different course every different week. Different courses, different yeah. continents, different grasses and all the rest of the stuff, yeah. So we'll we'll come to sort of that. Uh, having turned pro, done the traineeship and clearly you've decided your playing's not going to be for, for you then, what's the what's the thought process? What do you sort of try to map out and how did that resemble what your life in golf has ultimately turned out to be? Well, it didn't. It didn't resemble what happened, of course. Um, you know, making plans and... Realities often uh, are very different. Actually, I just read a, in a book something recently, a novel, but I like the expression. It was a, a Yiddish expression that said, man plans and God laughs. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and I think that's about it. It is true, isn't it? Um, you know, in my early 20s, uh, Adam came along. Uh, we were in Adelaide. I had a, I set up a little shop and a club-making factory. Um, I loved club-making and club anything to do with clubs, gave some lessons, didn't really think beyond that, thought, you know, maybe one day I'll go, I'd be lucky enough to get into one of the better clubs in Adelaide and become a club pro. I guess we weren't 100% satisfied with... It was tough. It was tough to make a living. You worked for a living, didn't you? You really yeah, worked. Yeah, you really... I mean, I used to work all day in the, sh- in the shop then, in the factory, and then go to the markets on the weekend and sell some second-hand gear and... Just how it was, you know, you had a young family. Uh, and we were hearing about all the development in Queensland. At that point, it was the Japanese development in the 80s and they'd built Palm Meadows and they were running the Palm Meadows Cup and Greg Norman was coming down and there Boom. was all this excitement. Boom doesn't start to describe what that period... Unless you live through it, you can't appreciate what it was like at the time, can you? All of these places were happening. Sanctuary Cove was happening. Frank Sinatra was coming yeah. down to open it. And we just decided to take a punt and say, maybe if we go to Queensland, there'll be more. And we might, like most people, think maybe we'll do better. Uh, so we came up here and, and just started doing bits and bobs, uh, and I got lucky and, through various circumstances, got a job at a, a new course being built called Twin Waters. That experience led me to the management side of golf clubs, but probably more importantly for me, it led me to meet and get to know well Peter Thompson and Mike Wolveridge, who designed the course up there. And they then convinced me to come down to the Gold Coast and start one that they were doing here called Hope Island, which I did. And that was a boom time in Asia. 
and they were extremely busy with design work and for whatever reason they liked how I was setting up their clubs so they started introducing me to all their clients in Asia and I then spent the better part of the next 10 years going a couple of weeks on, a couple of weeks off in Southeast Asia, primarily developing their courses, living in Australia because the kids were at school. So it was just a radical change from, you know, doing a few repairs in a on golf equipment in Adelaide to suddenly setting up courses in Southeast Asia. Because in a funny way, that's got nothing to do with golf, does it? You don't need to have a golf background to no. learn the, to learn what's required to start up and get a golf facility up and running. It doesn't hurt, obviously. It mm, doesn't hurt. But it's a completely adjacent set of skills, really, isn't it? it? It was different skills. It certainly wasn't skills I'd learnt, so it was in there and take a bite of the apple and keep chewing. Um, it was... It was, however, the broad base of skills that really helped me then because it got me to understand more about what they were thinking about with design. That got me to understand construction and maintenance and the effect all of that had on how a club could operate. Day-to-day um, operations, costs of... Be they exclusive. Costs of running a golf facility. Exactly. I don't understand what it costs to present courses the way we're used to them being presented now, do we? It's... Uh and that was the era when all that changed as well because we suddenly got wall-to-wall TV coverage of tournaments and our expectation of what we wanted to see on the screen was different. Water's bluer, grass is greener, exactly. greens are faster yep. and more consistent and all those sorts of things. What was that Southeast Asian influence? I looked at Queensland here and we're at Sanctuary Cove today and it's part of that whole boom that we talked about with Hope Island and Palm Meadows and Lakelands and that whole sort of a time. This feels very different to golf in most of the rest of Australia. This doesn't really doesn't resemble the sand belt, certainly, down in Melbourne. What, what influences this had, do you think, on golf and the golf business? Sanctuary Cove or Not this, just, well, this, this resort This, this sort of resort idea where it's a residential plus golf course plus open to the public, uh, really highly maintained. Some thoughts about sort of that and how that differs to golf as you experienced when you first came back from the UK and what it was like in Adelaide. Well, it's radically different. I mean, it's been a, this type of development, whether we call it resort or residential, call it both, uh, has been the prevalent style of new golf course development in Queensland, certainly. More so than Queensland than anywhere, I guess, because it's the, the holiday destination, the good weather, all of those things. And they've been reasonably successful. Uh, they're very successful for the developers. Yes. Uh, there's still problematic about what happens long term then because once the developer's sold his land, his interest in the golf course is zero and on they go and that's caused some issues as well. Here at Sanctuary Coast probably been a little lucky that that, that there's, there was so much land that it's been a very uh, long program and that's enabled the golf club with some good management practices to secure itself for the future. Just staggering development, this one, isn't it? <laughs> the couldn't, size of this is, couldn't be is jaw-dropping. It's it, it could never be justified in dollar terms again. You know, if I remember rightly, back when this opened in 1988, uh, Mike Gore was a developer. Uh, I think he spent $800 million then. Good Lord. Getting all this together. <laughs> so Lord. God knows what that would be now, but it wouldn't be affordable or provide a return. So, th- look, these golf courses right through uh, Queensland in this style, have been successful uh, and they're a big part of golf. No, they're not sand belt. And, no, no. Uh, there's, some, there's some fine golf courses mm-hmm. here. Have they been good for golf? That's a different question. Have they been good for Yeah, I think golf? they have because 
They've been part of a lifestyle in golf. Buy your property, live on the course. Um, even though I think that's probably only 20% of people that buy round courses yeah, play. I think the numbers, it was about 30, 10 or 15 years ago, if I remember. Right. Most who bought didn't play. But it's a nice lifestyle, yeah. isn't it? Because you've effectively, even if you're not a golfer, you've got a parkland around your properties. And someone comes and maintains it every day for yeah. you, keeps it looking <laughs> Quite nice. good. Who, who wouldn't want that? That's, uh... So I think they've been good for golf. Um, the long-term future for some of them is going to be problematic. That probably applies to not just resort residential no, that's right. style golf courses. Well, the business itself faces some very real challenges, doesn't it, at all levels, from public golf being under pressure mm-hmm. in urban areas in particular. We see this in Sydney at Moore Park where the, yep. the mayor wants to close at least half of the golf course mm. and have it as just parkland. That's not uncommon, and we're seeing that in places mm-hmm. around. What role do you see public golf playing? It feels to me like it's private golf, funnily enough, that should be really worried about some of those issues with public golf because without public golf, I feel like the tap stops running mm. to private golf clubs. It's, it's a complex issue would be my thought. Of course, having less and less public golf, which has happened through, say, my time in golf, is a negative. That I think that's a given if you're a, a lover of the game and you want to see the game succeed and even accept the evolution that... Public golf for a lot of people is kindergarten or primary school into golf, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Even if you accept that some private club golf is aspirational and even if the private club model's got to change, there's a fact either by the volume of golf someone wants to play or the capacity that they have to pay that we need to have these affordable, accessible facilities that people can go along and start or just play their whole life at and say, you know, I play twice a month, this will be fine for me. Uh, Not everyone wants all the trappings or wants to think they're going to be great, they just want to have some fun. There's a lot less of these facilities around now. Uh, I think that's disappointing. I understand it because so much of the Australian population is in five, six, seven centres, isn't it, and the land's so valuable. Um, but for whatever reason, it's like the example you said about the Sydney, the Mayor of Sydney, it kind of al- undervalues what golf can do for a community to think that. You know, um, of course it's evolved, like tennis has evolved and half the tennis courts aren't around that used to be. But we've got to be careful that we just don't urbanise everything and there's no easy recreational facilities for the community. One of the things I feel like gets overlooked is that if you take away Nine Holes of Moor Park as an example, you potentially deny to a lot of kids who are going to grow up in the city the opportunity to to decide whether or not they like golf. It's okay for Clovermore not to like golf. It's okay for anybody not to like golf. But to go the next step and deny somebody else the opportunity to experience it, there's something about that that's not right, that, that – that golf yeah. needs to make as a point. We've just discussed how powerful golf can be for some people. Changed your life, it's changed mine. I discovered golf, I've been in it ever since. And that gets over. It's not fair that some people just miss out on that because somebody decides they'd rather walk their dog on that space than allow it. Now, on the flip side, golf needs to learn to share. <laughs> Public golf. Well, I think that's the evolution. We've just got to look at it differently, not necessarily say, let's close that and take that away. That's right. Uh, why can't we learn to interact differently? I don't know the answers to all that, but, you know, studies could tell you that. I mean, who knows what it is? Maybe it's a golf course five days a week and a walking track or on the weekends, you know, whatever. There's solutions to say let's provide 
these facilities because if not, with our population living in city centres, then the only chance of developing new facilities will be miles out. Well, how then there's a different set of problems. How does a kid get to a public golf course in Sydney if it's 20 miles outside? How does he get there? Mum and Dad. So now there's another issue. And so it goes, we, you know, it takes some thought and work and it's not to demean anyone's opinion on it, but I think there needs to be more thought process in this. Yeah, so somebody needs to be campaigning for public golf. You mentioned Adam and young family and moving up to Queensland, those sorts of things. What was Adam's... We can't ignore Adam, obviously. This is really sure. – it's about you, but we, obviously we yeah. can't ignore Adam. He's won the Masters, the only Australian to ever do so. We'll talk about that a bit later. What was his role into golf? Is it a tricky proposition to be a PGA member or a golf professional and have a child who shows an interest in the game then? That can be a rocky road to try and navigate, I would imagine. Maybe it's a rocky road later. Certainly wasn't a rocky road for us in starting golf when Adam was a junior. Uh, in fact, you'd have to say it was the opposite because suddenly I had – I was working at facilities that enabled him to uh, play golf, not at will, but, you know, he had a great free run at it. Uh, he was playing on, in good golf courses that were in good condition, nice practice facilities. So he had a dream run as a kid compared to what a lot of... started in the yeah. in Wales. Yeah, and, and lots of kids, who some of whom have become great, had much tougher introduction to golf than Adam. So he was lucky. He had Twin Waters, Hope Island, Corralban... Um, he had a nice run, you know, and they were, they were his formative golf years. So I'd say being in the game was – or me being in the game was a great help to him, no doubt. And how did it come about? Was Did he show an interest or you were always at the golf course so he was there? How does that start? No, it wasn't that I was always at the golf course because he played when we were in Adelaide as a little kid. Uh, we were a golf family, that's what we – Because I think your wife plays too, doesn't she? She does. Yes. She's still a nice player. Um that's what we did as recreation. So there were clubs lying around and, you know, of course it was my passion. So he got into the game as a little kid, uh, hitting a beach ball around the backyard and then par three golf. And I was going to say in those days Adelaide had these facilities. They still have the facility actually at North Adelaide. There's a floodlit 18-hole par three course and two public courses right in the centre of town, right next to Adelaide Oval. So... Every time you're watching the Crows play footy, next door is Memorial Drive, tennis, mm-hmm. and next door to that is three public golf facilities. There you go. Right in the middle of the city. Let's hope they stay. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, but that's where he started playing, a little par three course, 70 yards long. Uh, suddenly, little kids can relate to that. They can't relate to 400 yards when you're six or seven. Eight, 70 yards, they can get it there. So that's how he started playing. So by the time we moved up here... Soon thereafter, I was at these other facilities. Adam just kept playing and, and he was hooked Yeah. anyway straight away. One, one advantage of being in the game, being a PJ member, you'd be able to spot fairly early on, I would imagine, that he was pretty good hmm. in some aptitude. He so, was good. So, so how does that – does that complicate things or, again, is that something for further down the road potential – complications it wasn't uh, there was no complication for adam and i through those times because i had the facility or the contact somehow to uh, to make the road easier for him did you coach him when he was young i did i coached him till he was 20 till he went on tour right okay i didn't realize that there you go okay um and so it it was a dream run again you know people 
a lot of people helped us. Um, you know, when we were at Twin Waters, Adam was 12 or 13, he'd suddenly got really good. It's funny, it, it does happen, doesn't it? Just yeah, over the course about, of a summer, something happens. Just a bit more muscle, I guess. Yeah. Distance becomes, you know, relevant. They can play the courses, and he got down to scratch then. And there was a secretary manager there I haven't seen or heard of him for many years at, at Royal Queensland called Ted Coker. Ted reached out and said, maybe Adam would like to play junior pennant at Royal Queensland. So suddenly that opportunity opened up. He played a lot of his junior interclub golf at Royal Queensland then. It was another stepping stone. And so it obviously the playing of the game wasn't easy, but the path was made pretty easy for him compared to others. Yes, indeed. You would have seen over your time right through the game that path go wrong for a lot of youngsters and parents. It can be difficult, can't it? Either the youngster doesn't want to or does want to, parents that can be overbearing. Did you see much of that with Adam during that junior pennant, pennant, that sort of whole very much club amateur stuff before you go to that next level where you start playing state events and then obviously national events and then turning pro? Did you see much of that back then? There was a lot of it. How did you avoid it? Maybe, maybe we avoided it just because I knew the game. I don't know, really. You know, you, I observed it from, from roughly when they, the kids got good, not great, but good, two, three, four, handicap onwards. Where, then, you, can, where you can see the light from. Yeah, <laughs> and then suddenly parents would see that. Perhaps then those parents aren't in the golf industry, so they're not as knowledgeable, maybe. Um, I guess it's not a prerequisite, but perhaps it helps. There was a lot of kids that were then put under incredible pressure at a point when they shouldn't have been. There is a point when you want to get really good at golf where there is pressure and you have to learn to deal with it. But when you're rolling along when you're 13 or 14, it's still got to be fun predominantly or there's a great increase in the chance that this will go pear-shaped somewhere. friend of both of ours, Mike Clayton, he asked this question the best, I think. How do you raise somebody like Adam who's clearly gone on to win the Masters and is yet still a good bloke? Mm. <laughs> Can't be that easy. The world you move into on the US tour and the European tour, huge pots of money, sharks everywhere, deep pool, lots mm. of people sniffing around. How would you know who you can trust and all that sort of thing? Hard to prepare somebody for that life, I would think, and to suddenly drop into it, as some have done, uh, that can be very difficult. How do you prepare for all of that? That's jumping ahead a bit, obviously, from junior yeah, no, penance and penance. But I get it. It's a bit, at the end of the day, there's, it's a heartbeat from 17, 18-year-olds winning national titles to 20 years old on tour. It's, it's quick. The transition's quick. When I reflect back, again, I'd think probably because I'd had a pretty good schooling in golf by then, some of the people like Peter Thompson who didn't directly comment or influence me but their manner influenced me in what pro golf could offer um it's not that hard to reflect and meet good and bad and sort of think well where would you rather sit in that adam's personality by nature was helpful he's very calm he doesn't like conflict he's not a particularly show-offy type guy that's not a criticism of others um some like that. Adam's not afraid of the spotlight, but he doesn't go seeking it. He's not Phil Mickelson. 
No, or, or Bryce, Greg, or you know, someone Greg who loved Hanks. all that. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, we need those people. We do need them. We in the press need those yes. people. <laughs> Trust uh, me. But that wasn't Adam's way. So, of course, he was influenced by a lot of those things that suddenly happened. I mean, if you're good and you get on particularly the PGA Tour or the top of the other tours, you know, no is not a word you hear a lot of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. And that can be difficult for some. I've got a feeling, and again, it's not a detrimental comment, the structure that they grow up in as juniors here becoming good golfers and going on tour is different to America. Uh, there's less hype. There's less hyperbole. I mean, a 16-year-old Jordan Spieth was getting touted anyway, wasn't he? He's the yeah, man. He's going to be great. We didn't get as much of that in Australia. So I, on reflection, I think that was a positive, that by the time you got it, you were a bit more mature. Mm. It's, it's more dog-eat-dog, dog too, the US, isn't it? You either shoot the number or you don't. Yeah. It's, there's a lot less of that. This is, you know, swing fundamentals or course management. Or it's like you either shoot the number or you don't because yeah. there's someone right behind you. And there's a lot of people that can that's, play. So that's exactly right. everyone in the business end of it basically saying, look, if that guy falls, oh, don't worry about him. We'll just yeah, go right one. behind him. There's yeah, another one. That's exactly right. Early success can be very dangerous. Kind of Adam had early success. Um not everybody necessarily handles that particularly well. Do you recall sort of those times and your thoughts as, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd be a bit of a sounding board for Adam, particularly in that early time. He was his own man now, three children of his own. I imagine you talk about different things. But at that time, I imagine you were quite the sounding board for him, probably one of the lone voices you feel you can trust when you're on the other side of the world, mm. surrounded by people that you've not met before in this shark pool that we've already sort of talked about. Do you recall sort of what sorts of discussions you had about that and I do. navigating that? I do. I mean, it was an interesting time because, as I said, I stopped coaching Adam when he was 20, which is really when he went on tour, and Butch Harmon started coaching him. Butch was really good for Adam and not just in teaching him no. more about tour golf, but important figure in the pretty game. straight Butch shooter. Yeah, Butch. very much. Uh, I like Butch a lot. He's been really good to our family. Um so we, he wasn't completely surrounded, you know, by the hyperbole. Um, we, we also made a decision very early in Adam's pro career that we would manage in-house and not stay with management companies. Was that a big decision? You would have had a lot who would have been interested, I imagine. We, we spent one year with IMG, the first year he was a pro, and then separated. They can be persuasive, those very firms, can't so. they? Um, it wasn't their desired outcome, that. Uh, Again, with hindsight, it was a great decision, but it, it directly reflects on what you were asking, that the decisions were made in-house. Um, certainly in those earlier years, more of them were influenced by me than Adam because he was a young guy, although he was involved in it all. As time's gone on, he takes control of those decisions now. We still manage it in-house. We have his whole career. I think that was a plus, because we didn't have influence by those with broader agendas. I mean, if you're a management group, naturally, you might have 10 players or 100 players or three players. So every decision you make as you're talking to anyone external, an equipment company or companies that get involved in sponsorship of golf, has different agendas because you mightn't like what they're telling you for Adam Scott, but you've got to be careful because one of your other clients, Rod Murray, is also wanting a deal. Uh, none of that applied to us. We could do what we wanted. Um, I'd like to think we did it nicely. Because there'd be some dangers with that too. I mean, again, you're probably wandering into a field that you 
probably don't have all the tools necessary at the start, perhaps. Yeah, we didn't know it all. We, we hadn't dealt with all that. Unlike a management group who've been doing it forever, we had to learn as we go. We got incredible support from one or two of the companies from day one, which took a lot of the pressure off, um, and they weren't influencing Adam in any way other than just letting him play. So once again, he had a, you know, we, we got this really great run, I think, from the junior time into early pro golf where he was not pressured. We went to Europe. He, he learnt a bit more about pro golf for two or three years in Europe before he went to America. Titleist, who'd been his equipment sponsor his whole life, were unbelievable in those times. The then CEO, who's not with us, you know, well, he's with us, but he's not with Titleist anymore. Still well, advising. Still he'll, advising. He'll still send you an email about the distance discussion if yeah. you say something he doesn't like. <laughs> Trust me. True. <laughs> uh, he was awesome for us. It was no pressure. Um, uh, it made the financial aspects of playing world golf easy. So it, it was a – I wouldn't say it was a charmed run, but it was a very even road for us. And that, that allowed us, I hope, to make good decisions and decisions that fitted Adam's personality. I suppose the advantage of doing it in-house is that even if you make the wrong decision – You've made it with the right intentions. Mm. There's no second-guessing in that way. Is there? So, well, hang on a minute. That, that hasn't turned out the way I thought because somebody's manipulated something mm. for themselves, and that must have – the top of world golf would be an incredibly lonely place as the player, potentially. Mm. It, 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 it's a – Adam's his own brand. Rory is his own brand. We know Tiger's his own brand. Tiger's probably a couple of brands. Tiger might actually <laughs> be the PGA Tour as well as we're watching unfold as his career – well, there's a lot of pressures there. Be, I can't imagine what that bubble's like to sort of live and move in. You would need to be calm, wouldn't you, to... to I think so. Well, I think you need to be true. So if you're not a calm personality, then you need to reflect what you are. I think that's a key anyway. Adam, Adam was calm. We made... I'm sure we made plenty of bad decisions or questionable decisions or whatever, but they never really uh, worried us too much because it was just us. Not fatal. We just fixed it up. It wasn't affecting anyone else. We didn't. We didn't do anything wrong. So, um, have you enjoyed that as a business? You've gone from running a little factory and working mm -hmm. on golf clubs, which is very simple and straightforward and uncomplicated, mm -hmm. <laughs> to opening golf facilities and resorts, which is mm -hmm. somewhat more complicated and and involved to climbing into the well. The, the upper echelons of entertainment and sport, mm. PGA Tour, the top level and those sorts of things, that's a whole other world again. Have you enjoyed that? Oh, I did. I mean, I think I'd say, you know, 98% of, of it I've loved. Most of the people have been great. Any Anything at that level of business can have some moments that aren't ideal, uh, but they've been few and far between. I loved it. I mean, it was golf. Same thing. All of a sudden, I'm still in the same industry and I've learnt lots of stuff along the way, and now I'm doing it for my own son and watching him succeed. None of the difficulties seem that difficult, really. It's a long way from Mount Lofty to Augusta National. It is. <laughs> Same hills, I'm not telling you. Same skill set required to walk the place, yeah. which brings us neatly too. We're probably going to skip a whole bunch of stuff. There's so much I'd like to ask you about. Of course, Adam did win the Masters, first Australian to do so, and I'm sure you reflect on that still probably almost mm. every day and what an achievement that was. Where were you? What did that mean to you? How's that all fitted in? And then you've got to tell us what it's like to get to play Augusta National the week before the Masters mm. most years. 
I mean, as, as of course, as you get older and you, you have all these wonderful abilities to tell stories that people can't decide whether they're true or not. I, whenever I, there's, there's debate about how much coaching's changed, I just love to say, look, everyone else that's here that's coached a Masters champion can come and stand next to me. <laughs> What a gift he's given you. There it is. It's every Father's Day for life. It may change, but at the moment it's still good. (laughs) Um, Gosh, Augusta. Well, I was uh, in the playoff hole, I was on the, they'd let me stand on the fairway on the 10th. Uh, it was raining, it was dark. It was horrible, wasn't it? It was horrible. <laughs> Everything about it was horrible. <laughs> it, that was the last hole. If someone didn't win it, then it, that it was going to be the, the next, next day. day. That would have, what would that have been? Oh, gosh, thank the, goodness. The deflation have, would have been. I don't just know how been. that would have been in the house that night. I'm happy we didn't have to. Quiet, I think, is probably yeah. the word, yeah. <laughs> um, but I couldn't, I was just wandering down the side of the fairway as normal, and the guys from the club came over and said, you know, if you want to get on the fairway, you can stand here. So I was maybe. I'm trying to think. I was the other side of the big bunker. It's got to be 100 yards out, I might have been, in the fairway watching when they got on the green. Um, it was so dark I couldn't see the ball from there. Mm. So I could see where they were, see the people, but you but... couldn't see the ball rolling. So I decided the only way I could do it was watch the crowd because they're going to react. Gonna react. And the crowd is... Kind of, if we're looking at the green from where I was as a clock face, it was 12 till 6 because the left-hand side, there's no gallery that's right, yeah. on 10. Um, so when Cabrera putted, he was putting straight up the clock face, 6 till 12. And so I just watched the crowd because I couldn't see the ball. And the crowd started to go up at the end of his putt, which we now know what it was. But it, I thought, oh, my goodness, he's hold it. It's going to go in. And then the groan, you know, the next thing is the groan. What a way to watch golf yeah. from 100 oh, yards in the dark. Yeah. That's fabulous. So then it's Adam's turn and he's now putting from 3 o'clock, say. Now I can't see the through crowd because there isn't a through gallery, but the gallery behind him is now what I'm watching. So I did two things, obviously, because I know his game. I watched his finish position in the putt because he was putting with the long putter at that time. Whenever he hit a really good putt, he held his finished position. So I watched that and saw him hold it and thought, okay, and then I just watched the crowd behind him and then they just went up you know, up in the air. What's that moment like, though? It's probably impossible mm. to put into words, I imagine, but what must flood over you um, at that time? I don't know that there's a good words or explanation and and because you can make it up later and think I was this or I was that. I don't recall that. I just recall thinking he's done it. Yeah. I think I was a bit shocked, probably. Uh, all I remember saying was, he's done it. And then I got down. It was so wet. I started running and realised I'd fall over on the fairway. Or get kicked out. It's Augusta yeah. National, for goodness sake, Phil. <laughs> there was one of the members <laughs> with me. And I had a walking stick, a seat. Oh, one of those, yeah. Um, so I was cool. using that to prop me as I wandered down the fairway. And then I got to him just as he was walking off the What grade. did he say? What did you say to him what, if it's not too personal? To I say, what I said to him was it may never get better than this. Yeah. And does the – the Masters, of course, was the last real sporting mountain for Australia to climb as a nation. We know that Adam did it, but we all feel some ownership of that. Cadell Evans had won the Tour de France, so that yep. was pretty much it. Do you, do you know that at the time? I'll ask you about the, the tour when Adam came home, which I thought he 
covered himself in glory in a way that was quite special. But does those realise that you, like the rest of us, must have been getting up, and Adam must have been getting up. I think he even said so at 6 o'clock on a Monday morning to watch it slip through our fingers time after time after time. Does all of that factor in or is it really just a personal thing at that moment? Oh, no, definitely. I know Adam felt the same as I did about the Masters before that day. I mean, yeah, he got up as a kid because I did. Yeah. Let's watch Greg. He's you know, leading again or he's in the hunt or whatever. It was Greg for years, wasn't it? We had Jack Newton close, yeah. Greg Parry close. Yeah. Um, but it, it seemed like it was going to be Greg, didn't it, for many yeah. years. I mean, it was how, just a matter how, of time. I still can't believe it wasn't, as I'm sure most can't. no. I mean, we all have memories of it, I suppose. I can remember, uh, what was the Faldo year, 97? 96. 96. Uh, I was working in Malaysia and I drove across from Kwantan to Kuala Lumpur across the country that night, got there when the back nine started because I, I thought, I've got to go watch him win this. He's finally it's there. And it was amazing. When I got there and saw the score, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, uh, look, I think Adam was no different in that, you know, we want an Aussie to win. And, you know, gosh, there were a few Aussies that year in with a chance oh, too. Awesome. And, of course, Jason and Adam had run, been runner-up a couple of years before to Schwartz. 2011 was – yeah. how an Australian didn't win that oh, is criminal. Amazing. So he genuinely felt the same thing. Um, and as an Aussie, I think later – not later as in years later, a day later – he was reflecting that he'd done something pretty special for Aussie sport generally, not sort of uh, beating him, patting himself on the back, but just thinking this was the America's Cup with Alan Bond or, you know, Cadell, whatever. This is what Very it's much. about. Australia yeah. was watching. Yeah. Was the whole country was as we'd watched Greg for years. Non-golfers yeah. got up to watch it and, you know, yeah. and then it sort of happened. So it's still a nice thing for, for us to think about. It's fantastic. <laughs> You'd hope so. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have that one yeah. forever. From the outside, it feels to me like something changed in Adam after that. He'd been a high-profile player for quite a while. He had a couple of near misses, the one that really must have heard the year before at Litham uh, in particular sort of springs to mind. He'd been a high-profile player and, you know, he'd been on the cover of all the magazines and we all know he's got probably the sexiest swing in the game and, and all of that. It felt to me after that in press conferences when he came home that year and probably more so even since, a realisation of where that's placed him in the game, it's somewhere different, isn't it? When you mm. win a major, remember Jeff Ogilvy told me when we won the US Open, I said to him, you know, what sort of change? He said, well, suddenly I knew everything apparently. <laughs> I knew everything about everything because I'd won the US Open. And I suspect maybe that's probably been true for Adam as well. But have you seen that change? I mean, it feels from the outside like he's taken on that role mm. more so. He said some things since then which could be called controversial. His stance on the Olympics, mm -hmm. didn't earn him any favours with Dawn Fraser obviously. But he's done those things with great integrity, I think, fabulously. Mm. You're free to disagree with Adam about anything, obviously, but do you sense that, that something changed in him? Well, I think that's um, very perceptive of you. Not, not, not many people have said that. Uh, it definitely was the case. It, to me, it's a bit the same that when you're a good young player, whether you're an amateur or just turning pro, and people are telling you you're really good, you're really good, and... It sounds great, but until you actually go and win, you're not quite sure. I know that's what Adam felt. You know, he'd had a very successful junior career, you know, lots of stuff. People say, oh, you're going to be a great pro, you're going to win. But until he won, he said, well, you know, it's a maybe. And then there's an inner 
a different belief because it's a real inner belief of I know I can do it. I've done it. It's not people telling me I can. And so his career had gone along with a, couple, a few near misses in the majors and he'd been successful, of course, and won a lot of tournaments, but people had talked about him being a major champion and then suddenly he was and it changed the belief system. Um, and in his personality, as you just pointed out, it just I think it just gave him the confidence to say, I'm not afraid of the answer. You know, it, it, it also coincided with about that age and stage. He was 33, 32, 33 when he won the Masters. So there's a bit more confidence and a, uh, a genuine thing of I'm experienced enough, I've been out here long enough that I'm not making this up. And I think he's, even when he's made what we'll call controversial comments, I think he's always done that with balance and integrity. Like you said, Dawn Fraser may not agree, but I guess Dawn Fraser didn't write the book on golf, pro-golf. She wrote a book on pro-swimming. True. Hard to win a public argument in Australia with Dawn, but I think Adam did. I think so. Because I mean, I think... he spoke truth. You know, you reflect that everyone's entitled to an opinion. Of course. It sometimes can be prejudicial for people that, whose opinions can be aired much more publicly than others, and Dawn's certainly entitled to it. She's earned it. A As a family, story. we didn't really worry about it, only that she made a couple of comments that were off the mark when she talked about money. Well, it had nothing to do with money. Um, Passed that long ago. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't, it, you know, that was just not relevant at the time. So, yeah, I think Adam's remains more comfortable in being a voice, uh, but he doesn't go out of his way to do it. No, Someone's no, no. has got no. to ask him the question. No, absolutely yeah. right. And I, perhaps that's what I feel like I noticed had maybe changed him. Should you choose to, being one of the best handful of players in the world in golf comes with a responsibility, should you choose to accept it? You don't have to. Nobody has, mm-hmm. I feel like Adam sort of accepted it. Mm. That's how it feels from the outside. He's done a couple of fabulous long-form interviews. Um, he probably doesn't get the press outside Australia, I don't think, necessarily. I think he's extraordinarily thoughtful about the game and mm. where it stands and whatnot. I feel that's just how it felt to me, that mm. he had some things he wanted to say and he, he's quite comfortable to say them these days. Your relationship with Adam and both of your own relationship with the game itself, when you start out in Wales, you're hitting balls and it's a bit of fun and one comes out the middle and it feels good. When you've got a putt on the second playoff hole to win the Masters, chances are you've got a very different relationship with the game itself. Yeah. What have you been your observations about how that's changed over time when it goes from a recreation to a business and a big business, which it has for Adam? And for you too, there's no pressure on your own golf, obviously, but has your relationship with the game and the playing of the game changed and, and how have you sort of seen Adam's change? Um, I suppose it's true that my relationship with the game's changed a little, but... Uh, not markedly, I don't think. I mean, I, I love playing golf as much as I did, you know, round two at Ashburnham Golf Club, however long ago that is now, 49 years ago. Um, I just love playing. I just love everything. You still play golf. often? Yeah, I play maybe three times a week. Um, I love equipment still. I love fiddling around with it. I love understanding the techniques or the reasons people do things. Um, so... I think it might, for me, my relationship just seems a bit deeper with golf. Um, it's still a reality that I can't 100% understand Adam's relationship with the game because I didn't play at that level and experience all the things that he has. He clearly still loves playing golf. It's more difficult now for him with a young family, 
Um, certainly the travel restrictions of late have made it tricky. Um, he is in the process of changing some of those circumstances which he thinks will give him the best chance at the next five years of high-level golf and then it'll be problematical. Because he said himself, hasn't he, that the window doesn't open any further, it only closes yeah. from this point. So he knows that. And it's probably narrower just in some of the golf realities that of the young guys, how far they hit it, how they if set Phil the can win at up. 50. Exactly. And those big, the majors and certain of the majors courses are going to be their best chance. A regular tour course, it's going to get harder for the older guys because the guy that can just bomb it out 350 and, you know, there's 10 of them on tour now and if three of them start putting ball that week, that's it. One of those three wins. Um, I think we're going to see Adam do some more things in golf, not just playing. When he finishes playing, I'm certain he'll do some things back here. Uh, he's got some good ideas and he's starting to put plans in place to try and have some positive influence, let's say it that way. Whatever they are, it's not worth being too specific because they might change. Well, we saw what he did during the COVID lockdown here, playing with young players around the coast. Yeah. Just that. That's a money-can't-buy opportunity for a couple of kids who talk about yeah. life-changing. I think he'd like to try and influence some of the existing infrastructure to promote it more, to promote young golf more. Not just new – it's not about new facilities. It's about what can we do at existing facilities uh, that'll help. I think we've got enough courses at the moment. You know, It's a good business to fix them up and it's a good business to start looking at a different business model for golf course. So I'm sure Adam will do more of that. Um, he's, you know, his time while he's been playing, he accepts it, he's got limited time in Australia. So whilst we've run a foundation here for 16 years, it's been non-golf. We don't hear a lot about the foundation. What no. does the foundation do? I know it exists. Mm. And I recall, did you give away some iPads a few years we ago? We did, yeah. That's the one thing I can really remember. About well, I'm glad you remembered it. Boy, that was a difficult equation, that actually. I seem to recall that it became quite problematic. I think we gave away a thousand iPads, and actually having to choose who was who going gets to get them—that's them awful. Was which, horrific. Which, which charity do you give to? Yeah, you I mean, we did all. it direct with the autism spectrum people in Australia, and I think there were ten thousand applications, and then it just became really difficult. But anyway, um, the foundation's educational. A bit like what Tiger Woods has done with his learning centres? Kind of, except so we, we've concentrated. Of it's for underprivileged, disadvantaged youth. Um, we started it primarily with tertiary education. So this year I think we're doing 20-plus university scholarships. We've, we've also supported the Smith Foundation, Smith Family Foundation, specifically in their role of trying to keep kids in school and then merge it into some tertiary help. We do that with a group in Adelaide as well. And that's really been what it's about. So we, it's actually quite a lot going on now. We're, we're, in two years, we'll be Australia-wide with the uni scholarships. Is that, what you, pardon me, is that what you spend most of your time doing these days? No, I'd say I spend some of my time. Most of my time is still spent running Adam's businesses. Right. Um, Which would be a full-time job in itself, I'm sure. Yeah, I'd like... It's less, but it's enough. Um, the foundation's great. We've got a a GM at the foundation who interestingly came to work with me at Twin Waters Golf Club 30 years ago. Wow. And he's with us still. Um, 
And we keep it reasonably quiet. Yes, it's Again, not a- because Adam's not here to... If you publicise it a lot or get corporate entities supporting you or whatever, well, they want Adam. Understand that? Well, he's not here. So we can't do that. So Adam funds it all. Um, you know, it's a significant enterprise now um, in uh, financial terms. Uh, we've always liked education as a thing. Actually, we, we spend a bit of time looking at Andre Agassi's uh, charity works in America, and he focused it all on education. He, in fact, built a school. Wow. Okay. Uh, from literally primary Dirt. school to college. To, wow. Amazing job. Yeah. Um, and we realised how much it changed people's lives in that underprivileged sector if suddenly a kid was given the opportunity to a tertiary education. And Education is the answer to all of the world's problems, isn't it? It, it really is. It is. The more people you educate, the better the world becomes. So that won't change. We'll keep doing that. But I think he'll do some more golf things when he's back here. Quickly, I've just noticed the time. I've kept you longer than no I meant to already. Let's touch on a couple of things quickly. The yep. state of the game here in Australia professionally is mm. problematic. Do you mm. see any solutions? The problems mostly seem to be from outside in many ways. Australia can no longer afford top-line players to come and play here as we could in the glory mm. days when Greg was the world number one before that, Jack and Arnold and, and Gary. That's very difficult without government money for Australia in this day and age. Do you see any... Are you hopeful about future of Australian professional golf? Well, look, let's... I'll, I'll try the not to answer perhaps. it too lo- in too <laughs> long-winded a way, but it's of great interest to us. Um, Top-level tournament professional golf in Australia is completely reliant on government money now. We know that. I think that's a really dangerous position. Um, and it has to be the case that our two main official bodies in Australia, Golf Australia and the PGA, had their head in the sand for some period of time in this era when professional golf has changed dramatically. And it has changed dramatically in the last 24 years. And the the line in the sand was the start of the Tiger Woods era. It became a big business. It was always a good business. Now it's a massive business. Tournaments are actually events, aren't they? They're not a tournament, they're an event. They're events. They're, they're entertainment. It's made for television. I'm sure if you asked a collective group of the world's best players, they'll say to you, four events matter and the rest are entertainment. That's the truth of it. Yeah. Um, that's nothing wrong with that. No, I think Adam But now with it, you know, the PGA Tour is billions yeah. Yeah. in TV rights. We haven't touched on the PGL or the Saudi golf yeah. yet. So, <laughs> so that, and that, that's happening because it's TV. If it wasn't TV, they would, no one would be interested in it. So we've grown the game as a visual spectacle on television. We haven't necessarily grown the game at the grassroots level. There's no more players. Just through COVID, they're playing more, but there's no additional players. But also because of that TV interest, that brings corporate sponsorships. And it's just big business now. And there needs to be a recognition of that. We can all accept that Australia's in a difficult position there geographically. We're separated. You know, it's a small market. But we can't, clearly to me, we can't rely on local sponsorship to a level that would get enough money in to have world stars here, other than just paying one or two of them a lot, which is fine. It's what we've done for the last But unfortunately, years. if one or two of them don't play well that week, you've achieved nothing. Um, I think the official bodies, our two main bodies, you have to take some responsibility for that because they are in charge. Um, maybe they haven't looked in the right areas to 
acknowledge that problem as much. Um, and whether that is the field they should be in of, of trying to of really worrying about top level pro golf or not. It's another question, isn't it? Is a whole different question. My feeling is unless we make a formal affiliation with another tour, we're not going to increase our only two significant events in Australia now to, to world level. I mean, they're so far behind now, Rod. The danger of that co-sanctioning, of course, is that it comes with dilution. So you lose some of the Australian spots, which is one thing. But if, for example, the Australian Open was to co-sanction with the European Tour, it essentially would have then it would go into the pot of the same prestige as the Slovakian Open and the pick whatever other national open, smaller national open you want. There's a danger there, isn't there? How do we maintain like, look, our identity? I maybe have a different view of that, rightly or wrongly. It's just a view. It's a lovely sentiment and a nice conversation to have about how meaningful the Australian Open was in the 60s or the 70s and Arnold came and Gary came and Jack came. And The truth is they came because they were contracted. To, but I, I still subscribe to it was important and they did play and but it's not. Today, it's not important to world golf, the Aussie Open. It's just not. The current crop of players, if you go outside this country, aren't thinking, cool, I'd like to win the Australian Open because Jack did. It's just not even on their radar. The Tiger never won it possibly hurts us a bit, to be honest with you. Maybe. There's a, that, li- that's there's a, good a little yeah. bit of that in there too. Don't mind that. That's a good yeah. point. Um, so I, th- I kind of think like we've got to accept that and say, okay, let's not worry about what it was in the past. It's evolved. What are we going to do with the Aussie Open in the future? What are we going to do with the Aussie PGA in the future? Are they? Do we just need to get more doors open if you win them or come in the top three and promote them to our Aussie players and say this is a pathway? I don't know. Um, you can argue about the you know, co-sanctioning. It, it provides less field for Aussie players. On the other hand, it provides greater pathways if you are one of those players in the tournament. It's a difficult equation, but I think we need a fresh approach to it. But the notion a co-host of mine on another podcast puts forward a radical notion that he even he agrees he wouldn't be brave enough to implement where he made Zara of golf for the day. But we continue take the Masters as an example. It does everything the other tournaments don't. And all of those things held it back in the beginning. You know, everything it does is the polar opposite of almost every other tournament. Here we are as the Australian Open admitting we can't afford to compete with those other tournaments, offering up exactly the same product as those other tournaments. What about something radical for the Australian Open? A radical change. His plan being essentially, let's redo the most. So, right, that's it. It's a small purse, that's it, but it's fifth oldest, one of the sixth oldest trophies in the world. You want to come and play? We play it on great courses. And this is what it's about. Yeah, I don't... Look, I think that debate around a table with people not only of influence but um, some creativity in golf experience would be good. Who knows what it is? I mean, it's almost a certainty that you think we should be playing these two tournaments on our best courses. That is hard to argue. World-recognised courses. And I could honestly say that Adam wouldn't be concerned at me saying when he's talk to players overseas, big-name players, about coming down here, uh, if not their first question, their second question is, what course am I? Am I playing one of those good courses? Rory said that he would have played the Australian Open if not for COVID because it was going to be at Kingston Heath. And I've talked to Rory myself about that, and I know that's right. Yeah, I don't think he would have said it if it wasn't. Now, I don't think that means he was going to play it for free either. Different point. I'm sure he wanted some incentive. But still, yes. You know, if you tell them you're playing a course that doesn't rate, they're just, there's a why would I take a 20-hour flight It is what we have got, isn't it? 
We've He's got some great golf courses. golf courses. We've got some great attractions. We could build things around that. To work for the LPGA with the Women's Open, it I has. think. Those great golf courses yes. in Adelaide and the golf that's exposed some of those I mean, I took those, those three courses. I've played that rotation of the ladies. I was the open. Ah, awesome golf course. And great golf to watch. The spectating experience is magnificent. To see these players work it out. They're not used to that sort of Good golf. as it gets the ball bouncing it's on and the running. Ground and it's yeah. Pitching to chip really four lovely. irons. Oh, it's phenomenal stuff. Absolutely. The opposite of perhaps what we'll see at the US Open men's very, this week. <laughs> very much so. Which is on this week just to date when we're doing But this. a radical, you know, you said radical. I don't mind the idea of that either. Um might be time, mightn't it? It might be time. It might be time to push them together and say you're playing for both or uh it might be time to play it under lights. You know, something. Whatever. Let's do something different. You're you're 100 right. You can't take a failing product into a into an existing successful market and think you're going to succeed. Definitely. It's just not going to happen. Definition of madness, isn't it? Keep doing the same thing over and over and expect a different hey, result. And that's what we're doing. You know, and it kind of is. I, I I do remember the Aussie Open celebrate. I think it was in 2017 celebrating 20 years of the same purse. Was still in 1997. Big dinner, that one. It was the same. It wasn't as big as it would have been if we'd had it 20 <laughs> years earlier, but it was still a big dinner. So we've got, you know, we've gone backwards in some way. And it's not to say everyone's hopeless or no, no. I could have done it better or whatever. The rest of the world's gone so far forward at the same time as well. We talked at the start. It's evolved. Golf's evolved into a big business. We're not part of that big business. We're just not. Do you like everything about new golf, if we could call it that? What do you feel about golf? Are you optimistic about it? It has changed an awful lot, obviously, from the game that you and I fell in love with. Is, it, is, that, is that still available for a 10, 12, 15-year-old to fall in love with today? Um, yes, I think it's available. I like a lot of modern golf. Uh, I, again, I think if we talk about the development of the game and the way kids are reacting to it, it's a good spectacle to watch on television. Kids like watching someone smash it. That's kind of what these young guys are growing up, remember, that that's what they see yeah, golf is. But they're only being told that, Phil. I defy mm. even you to stand behind Adam and tell me how far he's hit a drive mm. because the difference between 280 and 330 is certainly on television doesn't show unless you put a grid on the fairway. No. And distance being relative, I, I accept your point, but Norman smashed it. That's why people mm. went out to Washington. He just smashed it in a, on a scale that was workable for golf courses. There's always been long hitters. Of course there has. And there always. Are, there always will be. But what we see now, I think, is beyond that. This will be my point to you. Of, yes, the kid watches telly. He's just being told that Bryson is smashing it. It's at miles. But when he looks at, when he sees the ad come on during the telecast or he picks up the golf magazine or he walks in the pro shop, Everything, every influence from every major company who sells equipment is speed and distance. That's all they talk about. I don't recall seeing a poster in the shop that says precision, artistry. It's not. It's speed, distance, um, and that's the modern. That's the modern way. So is that a dumbing down, or is that putting it too strongly? Are we dumbing the game down no, in some ways? No, it's not putting it too strongly. Uh, it sells because that sounds good on telly, and then. The equipment company, as they would if you and I owned it, said, Justin Thomas hitting a long way with that driver, I'll promote that. So people run out and buy this driver that Justin Thomas has got because he's hitting it a long way. Does the it fact change? that they can't hit it at all well, we know that. that's always is irrelevant. Been. We know that's always been the case, just the scale of that's probably changed. Does that change the nature of the players at the top of the game? Does that help or hurt Adam, for example? Adam's probably average driver these days, he's always been long. Uh, he's a Obviously, a fantastic ball striker. Does it change the mix of players at the top of the game? That's what it feels like has happened. It is more one-dimensional at the top. It used to be the case that 
not all good players were long hitters. Yeah, the short hitter had a chance, didn't he? Gary Player Feels like won a lot of tournaments in Nicholas's right. time. And Nicholas was long and Gary wasn't. Trevino wasn't long. No, that's right. Once. A 300-yard average now is average. That's pretty, average. It's pretty hard to argue against if you're not long, you're going to find it tough. <sighs> it's a great debate, isn't it, that they lengthen the course and they narrow the fairway and they lengthen the rough. So... Where does the advantage sit? Some people argue that the long hitters, you know, the fairway's narrower, but he's got less club, which is what the top pros do now. They say, I might as well miss it long. Bryson showed it in November, didn't he? Smashed it in the rough and then wedged it onto the ground. Interestingly, Bryson's whole set makeup helps him because if you've smashed it long into the rough, he might still have 170 yards in example, but his wedge is the length of a six-iron, but he's got the loft value um, hitting it out of the rough. Did you play one length clubs for a while? You mean recently or I've I've heard I've heard in the past that you had a set of single length irons at some point in your Yeah, look, I've had career. twice I've done it. I made a set 40 years ago. Okay. Back when I had a little factory and yeah, I was yeah. tinkering around. What was the, the idea seemed really good. Um, the technology I had available to me, <laughs> lead tape, <laughs> lead tape and a hammer and some aerodite. <laughs> Um, didn't help. They, you know, the weights were all over the place. I think DeChambeau had the same problem, to be fair, when he initially did Probably. it with his coach, Mike Shine. I didn't know. It. I mean, it was easy enough to grind the heads down of the heavy ones, but by the time I added enough weight into the others, there was lead tape halfway, uh, lead powder halfway up the shaft. I mean, the balances were awful. The concept of it always appealed to me, um, as you hear read about now, that Interestingly, with Bryson's success, they're not a big selling taken, item. Has not taken off. No, which you expected would have happened, but it hasn't. Would have thought so. The short, the super short, I was like sandwich in the bunker. Thirty six. Oh, I don't know about that. It's been the criticism of your short game, is it? That it may be a bit difficult to learn to really control a wedge that has a six iron length shaft in it. I think so. You, you think and there's a bit of logic to that. That does seem to have some merit. I don't know. I, I've got a feeling it won't take off. Um, but that said. You know, maybe it's harder for the 50-year-old average golfer to relate to Bryson. Uh, yes. You know? Like, is that <laughs> with the modelling? You say, I'll get, I'm like him, I'll get that stuff. Yeah, no. You can con yourself into thinking I drive it as good as <laughs> DJ. That's but right. I'm not sure about the rest. Adam's old now. I can keep up with him. Sure, yeah. I'll play what he's playing. That really bothers me. I mean, I watch the telecast and they say, oh, here's Adam Scott, the veteran. I think, what does that make me? Philly is. Where did those 20 years go? He's an elder statesman of the game. I guess that's the point I was making, and he's accepted that, I feel. And I think it's Hmm. a great thing. I think Adam's one of the best ambassadors the game has, let alone Australia. And I'm not saying that just because you're his dad. I Hmm. really do believe that. Um, I think he's been good. He's been fantastic. I think of him, and I think of Rory, and I think of Jordan, Mm -hmm. and they're the three that stand out. Tiger never did it. He never took on that responsibility. He he spent his lifetime saying nothing. But those three are thoughtful and articulate, and when they've got something to say, they say it. And look, Rory's got himself in more trouble than he ever needed to by saying what he thinks sometimes. I think that's right. You know what? I admire Rory not only because he'll do that, and that's and as he's getting older, he's becoming yeah, more thoughtful about it, 
But he's also stepped up. I mean, he is the president of the PGA yeah, Tour PAC committee exactly. this year. Yes. So he's prepared to get in there and do stuff. That's not a fun place to be with no. the Premier Golf League and a Super Golf League lurking around. And you're exactly. And he's made his comments about that, yeah, very which in much. certain quarters haven't been well received. Well, of course with, not. With his comments on certainly on the Saudi. I'm not going to ask you about that because I don't. Golf League. We'll see what unfolds with that. But I would imagine Adam's been a part of discussions with some of those people. He would be Interestingly, a, a player. We've that, been in discussions with one group or another for seven years. Yeah. 2014 about is about that. Yeah. So we'll see. It's a concept, long time to have not got off the ground, isn't it? Concept of tournaments featuring 50 of the world's best players is quite appealing. Um, you know, you can imagine as a watcher, well, that'd be good. Uh, the practicalities of doing that. There's so much more to it than just the best players too. They're going to be playing for the most important events in some ways. There's a, there's a lot in golf. Golf tournaments, and they're not like trains. Mm. If you just have more, then it's better. This is the whole idea of the Champions League. I had a great podcast with this, and the guy said, look, you know, this notion was, oh, if we just had Man U and Man- Manchester and Manchester play each other all the time, that'd be great because people like that local. Well, they like it when there's something to it. Yes. They can tell if it's just a contrived. It's like an exhibition match, isn't it? And Rory and Tiger played a bunch of those in China that were yeah. – we don't see as much of them anymore. No, we don't. It used to be skins events and all I, that. I'm not sure that we won't start to st- see those Maybe. again soon because the reality of what these leagues have taught us is there's literally a handful of players who drive the bulk of interest in golf. Yeah. Now, you need the rest of the field to beat. You have to have the field to beat. But there are a handful of players who people will put their hand in their pocket and say, I'll give you 20 bucks to go and watch him play. Yeah. And there's no more than that. And there probably never has been. I don't think so. I th- we always say there's 10 or 15 guys that move the, move dial, the needle. That's exactly right. And outside of that is fine, but that's what that's the that's reality. Right, I think that was always the case. Jack's time. Exactly. Arnold and Gary. And whatever. Jack, that, that's how it went. Greg and Nick and Sandy Lyle. Wisdom, always been Langer. Hogan, Demerit, Sneed. are the guys that, that stand out for those um, reasons. So. Will, well, look, will these Super Leagues get going? It's a tough one because they also want to do teams because that's where the big money is. Don't know that golf really wants to team. PGA Tour could do it themselves if they wanted to. Well, this it feels to me like the these two leagues might be the kick in the bum the PGA Tour needs to think about some of those those issues. It's not just Australia that suffers from this dishing up the same product week in and week no. out and wondering why it's not growing. The well, PGA, you just said, didn't you, uh, more is not always better. No, that's exactly PGA right. PGA Tour had 46 events this year, that's I exactly think, on right. the schedule. It's there, too much. Were there three of them weren't 72 holes straight play. You had the team event in New Orleans, yep. the match play. Okay, that's it. <laughs> the yeah. rest was so seven, they, they're just putting them on because they can, that's right. because it gets more TV rights money. There's sponsors there that will still stump up the money. But again, it's a bit like some of the other things we talked about, whether we call it dumbing down or let's call it evening up the field. That's why the PGA have done it. Because yes, they make more money, but let's say it's the full series events then a lot of the world's top players don't want to play because they've had a full season. This gives a great opportunity for the next level down to come along. Doesn't do us any favours in Australia, of course, because our own players have to stay there and play those events. Exactly. If if they're not Adam or Jason, doesn't help. Cameron or Mark Leishman. They have to stay there. Matt Jones missed defending the Australian Open because he had to stay. Of course. And you can't blame him. It's not a knock on him. But no. He had no choice but to stay there and try and keep his FedEx You, you can't blame our guys at any time that if they don't come back. I mean, they're playing their 
trade elsewhere. They do their best. And none of them would love anything more than to be back here. No, That's they the all like to come back, but it's do. not always it's that just easy. Not feasible, so. And these these schedules, I mean, it was still in Adam's early stage of Adam's career. Mickelson used to hang his clubs up at the end of the PGA Championship in August. You didn't see him till February. Yep. Well, if you do that now, there's been 15 tour events. And several. So you turn up and you think, oh my God, I'm 100th on the list. That's exactly right. And not only that, there's several million bucks that have been left out on the course that you could have had your share of. And that's, that's, it's not a a coincidence that the tour have done it that way. They're forcing their good players to play more because, of course, that gets them more money. That's right. Whether it will ultimately backfire, I wonder. wonder. Has Has it made the spectacle better? Don't know. Big question. Big question. Probably depends a lot on who you ask. Phil, I haven't even touched the surface of some of the stuff I wanted to talk to you about, but I must give you back the rest of your day. It's been an absolute joy to sit and chat with you, I must say. Fabulous to finally meet you at last, and thanks for taking so much time. We really appreciate it. Real pleasure, always. What a life in golf it's been for Phil Scott, and a huge thanks again to Phil for taking so much of his time to chat. Now, I hope you've made the effort to follow the show on your favourite podcast app, because on episode 47... John Huggan sits down with one of the most recognisable voices in the game, Scottish golf commentator Renton Laidlaw. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. <laughs>